0: Welcome back to the MLB.com StatCast podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello. Joining me here, Matt Myers, MLB.com National Editor. Hello, Matt. Hi, Mike. How are you? I am so happy that the uh, Hall of Fame voting has, has, we've gone past it for another year. We've got like 11 more months before we have to start arguing with one another about who's going to go in next year. Um, But we have three new Hall of Famers, and I I think I'm pretty happy with that, right? Like all three of them were guys I would have voted for, uh, Reigns, Pudge, and Jeff Bagwell. And I I didn't think Hoffman was going to make it, and he didn't, just barely. So I'm pleased with the outcome, yeah
1: sure and he will make it you know it's and the thing is thinking about the Hall of Fame that is um you know a couple years ago Dave Cameron wrote a great piece about this basically showing how players from the 80s players who played in the 80s and 90s are becoming like sort of criminally underrepresented in the Hall of Fame um that the, the, the small hall had voting had sort of taken over and that the, st- the standards were getting stricter and stricter but I think that's actually ch- kind of changing a little bit people are being a little more realistic last three years we've seen 12.
0: Yeah, I think I don't People know. Go in to Hall of Fame. We've had like three, three player, uh, you know, selections in the last couple of years, and that had happened like three times in the last thirty yeah. years or something. So,
1: so it's good to see. I mean, like obviously from a sentimental standpoint, it's cool to see players that, like I grew up watching, rooting for, get into the Hall of Fame. But I also think they deserve it, and it's gonna. I mean, next year there's you know Chipper and Tomey oh, coming on the ballot. Andrew Jones will be there. So like next year we probably I guess probably three or four with yeah. Chipper Jones, Tome Hoffman, Vlad Guerrero, and then after that you know you're gonna have Rivera, then Jeter. So it's like we're going to see a lot of hall of famers they're going to see continually see i think three and four person classes over the next year which i think is appropriate to sort of like balance out the fact that there are way more players born in the 1920s than in the 1960s in the hall of fame and that's weird it's ageist is what it is (laughs) so we have a few things to get to today
0: uh related we're going to talk about a trade that just happened uh we're going to talk about some outfield positioning stuff but first since we're talking about the hall of fame you came up with a really interesting idea i thought earlier today which was, you know, when will we see the first Hall of Famer whose, you know, case includes Statcast metrics? And obviously, that's years away because we've only been tracking this stuff for two years. So maybe we're talking about 15, 20 years down the road. Uh, and I thought that was a fascinating question. So I have some ideas, but I, I want to know who are you thinking?
1: Well, I had, you know, I sort of had to think about it. I had to, in my mind, I kind of had to be a young player, so someone where like Statcast will be part of their, will be able, will have data on like most of. Or if not all of their career, so it could sort of be like you know there'd be some uh, they can then compare them to their peers and current players. So the first name that came to mind for me uh, was Mookie Betts. Okay, um, I know this seems sort of extreme because like Mookie Betts Hall of Fame. My thought being that defensive metrics love him in like the the, the advanced metrics D- DRS defensive run saves, ultimate zone rating UZR, but we've also seen in its infancy of what we've been doing with catch rate and such that he stands out. As, an out, as a right fielder, is among, like, the best of the best. So I looked at a guy, he's probably not going to get 500 home runs. He's going to be sort of a well-rounded player, you know, if he can maintain, obviously, being a star, but he's a star. He's already a superstar at the age of, you know, what, 24. Um, so he, to me, is the kind of player that, you know, he's probably not going to get the the sort of the big black ink offensive numbers so that he'll need support from, you know, defense. And, the, and outfield defense is where we're sort of – on the forefront of like breaking through on defense, that was the the first name that came to mind for me. As crazy as talking about Mookie Betts in the Hall of Fame sounds. Well,
0: let me tell you, I have a couple of names on my list, and two of them are, are at least, not I don't know about younger, but less experienced than Mookie Betts. <laughs> okay. So we'll get to that in a second. But my first name is really two names for the same reason. Uh, older guys, Justin Verlander and Max Scherzer, right? Both maybe on a Hall of Fame trajectory. They've obviously accomplished a lot. So when we get to the end of their careers, we'll talk about ERA and, you know, wins or whatever. We're still talking about by then. But they have the two highest spin rate fastballs among starters. And I think we've learned a lot, especially for Verlander, how that's, Played into his success, like how he's using that high spin fastball. So, if he retires, let's say six years from now, and then five years after that, he's on the ballot. That's over a decade from now. Will we talk about Justin Verlander's spin rate on his fastball as why the fastball is so successful? I think that's cool. I think maybe we could. We gotta have a whole decade of data to compare it to. <laughs>
1: that's uh, that's th- th- those are two uh, very good calls. Um, another name that came to mind for me, even though he's he's sort of in between Bets and uh, uh, Verlander and Scherzer, is John Carlos Stanton. Because uh-huh. I think that, like, uh-huh. I really- think he's, pro- he's probably going to get to 500 home runs. And actually, probably. I'd say there's a good chance he gets 500 home runs. And I think it's going to be one of those things where you'd be like, you know, even in, you know, only a partial career of StatCast data, he hit more 450 home runs than, you know, this player who we have, you know, 15 years of debt on.
0: He's on my list too, by the way, for exit velocity. I will say I'm, I'm kind of down on Stanton's chances because he can't stay healthy, and guys that big never stay healthy, but yes, Stanton's exit velocity, absolutely on my list, and I know usually we do these things, and it turns out Matt's already seen my list. Not this time. These are actually lists we haven't looked at before the show. Uh, one for me, I'm cheating a little bit because this isn't so much StatCast, it's like pitch effect StatCast, but... Buster Posey's pitch framing. You always know, talk about Buster Posey's offense, which is outstanding. turns out he's the best pitch framer in baseball, too, over the last couple of years. And I think that's a big part of his value. He's not just a bat. He's great on both sides of the ball. And maybe, you know, as we go further with StatCast, we'll probably be able to to get a little bit better at the numbers. But, you know, as far as just advanced stats go, I think that's something that will absolutely come up in his case.
1: Yeah, he's an interesting case because, you know, um, Anthony Kastrovins wrote a piece that you'll see on MLB.com in the next day or two about the next player at each position to get into the Hall of Fame. And he's looking at wins above replacement – uh the by far the number one a catcher among active players right now is joe mauer granted he's now more of a first baseman but you know he, you'd probably call him a catcher you know for all intents and purposes 50 wins above replacement posey i was surprised only had 33 he's a bit younger obviously and catchers generally don't rack up big war numbers because they don't play as many games and, fr- and framing is not included in war. yeah um so, but I found that interesting, granted, I think that, you know, his postseason, in fact, he's won MVP, all that stuff, like, to me, Buster Posey, if I had to name players, active players, uh, who are going to make the Hall of Fame, he's not in that automatic group of Cabrera and Ichiro, but I think he's in the next tier, but his career award to this point, I found somewhat I don't want to say underwhelming, but I was I thought it would be higher. I'll say that.
0: I think because that doesn't adequately account all of his skills. And obviously, yeah, he's still got a lot of years left, so I agree with that. Um, the other two guys on my list, the young guys I talked about, and I know we're getting way ahead of the curve because neither one of these guys have played a full season in the big leagues yet. Gary Sanchez, because his arm strength is elite. We've seen him just rocketing guys out from behind the plate. So if he happens to have a great career and does that, we'll talk about home runs. But I hope we'll also talk about his arm strength, which would be awesome. And then Byron Buxton, just because I always like to talk about Byron Buxton. We talk about his speed, ways to quantify defense. Uh, He is kind of a five-tool player, and I think we're going to try to work on quantifying that with StatCast. I know he's got to do more than hit for like a month, which is really all his career has been to this point. So I know we're way ahead of ourselves but he's the type of guy i think even if it's not him specifically the type of guy who does all these really athletic things uh in every facet of the game that we'll be able to measure
1: yeah along those lines the other player that i had in mind uh is francisco lindor for kind of the same reasons that i had for bets which is like this is not a guy that's going to put up the big bold offensive numbers but he's excellent all aspects of the game so as we get more advanced base running metrics and he's young enough and even infield fielding metrics he's young enough that like we may start to see you know Within a year or two and he's only just getting his career started we'll start to see that he stands out in ways that we had never quantified before until it's like well wow this guy is not only he's, he's not just a good base runner he's like a great base runner you know the, the best in the game that sort of thing
0: all right well let's move on to uh, the trade of the day uh, Dan Straley goes from the Reds to the Marlins and maybe you're asking yourself why is that interesting Part of it's because it's mid-January and anything is interesting right now. But Dan Straley has actually had kind of a fascinating career. Uh, And, you know, Matt has come up with some interesting uh, StatCast numbers over his career. First, I'd like to point out the Dan Straley career path. Drafted by the A's, 2014, he goes to the Cubs in the Addison Russell deal. 2015, he goes to the Astros in the Dexter Fowler deal. 2016 goes to the Padres for Eric Kratz, three days later to the Reds on waivers, and then just today or yesterday uh, to the Marlins for three prospects. So I will say kudos to the Reds for a waiver claim that turned into a good season that turned into three prospects. I've been very down on the Reds' rebuild. This is a good one. They traded. They didn't wait too long like they did with some of the other guys. They traded him probably at the peak of his value because his season last year was... He's superficially good, but I'm not sure I buy the numbers behind it. A 3.76 ERA is okay, uh, but a 4.88 FIP is not so great. He had the second lowest batting average in balls in play in baseball. Now is that Walker skill? Maybe we'll get to that. He also allowed 31 home runs, tied for the most in the National League. So good on the Reds for selling high, uh, but he's an interesting case, right? So you actually were involved in a story about him a couple years ago.
1: Yeah, in fact, my first exposure to TrackMan, which is the the radar component of Statcast, uh, was because of Dan Straley when I was working at ESPN. Uh, one of our reporters this story on him because he was a—he wasn't a big time prospect, but I guess it was 2012. He had a great year at AAA and the PCL. When you have a pitcher who doesn't have great stuff, putting up like a striking out 11 guys per nine with like a low two ERA, it's sort of like, okay, well, what's this about? Something he was kind of this like buzzy prospect because he was like throwing 92 and no one really knew like why is he successful. Um, and he pitched in a game at Tacoma against Danny Holton, and you know they had a TrackMan set up there. And sort of the the thought at the time or so like I think the trackman operator had said to our reporter during the story was basically like his fastball maintained its velocity better than Holson's did. And, you know, I'm not – this is not necessarily a knock on Holton, but maybe this is part of the reason why, in addition to injuries, why he never lived up to his – Yeah, his shoulder his, did explode. Um, <laughs> but he was never that effective either, no, you know. No. Um, number two overall pick who barely could strike out anyone in the minors. But um, – so that was the first time I ever heard about Trackman. I was like, oh, this is kind of interesting. Little did I know that five years later it would be a big part of what I was uh, what I was doing uh, from a content standpoint. Um, but as it looking at him now from a t- StatCast standpoint, it's not exactly the – even though he has a long extension, it doesn't appear that you know, at least perceived velocity is what's the reason for success.
0: Yeah, he is a one of the let's say baseball nerds, and I mean that in a positive way. He uh, he went to drive line baseball, and we've had Kyle Bodie on a couple times in there. They are the uh, you know, the pitching warehouse basically that kind of teaches guys like how best to use their bodies to get velo- velocity and stay healthy. So he went last summer to try to or last winter to try to rework his mechanics, his release point, and the velocity reportedly in the spring was up. He was up at 94. Now this is unofficial because there are no sacs cameras in Florida where he was training. Um, did, didn't didn't really manifest itself in the regular season though. During the season, his average velocity was 90 miles an hour, which is basically where it was. Uh, his fastball got lit up. 359 on base against, 521 slugging against. So I really appreciate that he's into the data. He's talked about exit velocity. I think that's that's really cool. Like he started throwing his changeups inside to lefties because he's seen the exit velocity there is maybe a little lower, which is great. Like every pitcher should be trying to take that into account. But for all the work he did, the velocity didn't actually manifest itself. So there's there's a limit I think to how much he can actually get to. Um, and you know, is he an upgrade for the Marlins? I guess because they needed some depth, sure. But you know, it's I don't know I don't I don't see the numbers there. You know, kind of what you're talking
1: about. Yeah, and I mean the the one thing I will say about the 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 239 BABIP he had last year. I mean, he's a fly ball pitcher. He had Billy Hamilton. You know, maybe there was some like you know whether he was you know quote unquote pitching to contact because he knew he had this amazing center fielder, or just it just happened to be hey I'm a fly ball pitcher and then there's a guy behind me who gets to everything that you know worked in his favor. But it's hard to put too much faith in that in. In those numbers, yeah. when you consider his tr- his track record, well,
0: you found this. I thought this was great. His average perceived velocity identical to his actual velocity. Yeah. Like the extension gave him nothing; it was the exact same. Which is, I haven't seen that that often. That's pretty rare. Yeah, but so I thought that was funny.
1: Uh, we'll see how it goes in uh, in Miami. But the the Marlins are sort of trying to, you know, you know, obviously the tragedy of Jose Fernandez forcing to kind of try and be a little more creative and resourceful. And they, you know, they went out, they added Ziegler. they added um, Volquez. Uh, now uh, in Australia.
0: No, get on the Reds. I think my favorite deal of their rebuild uh, so far. I want to talk a little bit about outfield depth and uh, in a little different way than we've talked about before. You know, we've, we've talked a lot about who played deeply in the outfield, like Dexter Fowler and McCutcheon coming in shell and all that. And that's fascinating. But we can also track it by hitter. Right? Who got played the deepest or who got played the shallowest? Uh, and there's a couple of different ways we can look at this. Now, if you just want to look at pure depth, and for the moment, we're just going to look at center fielders uh, with a minimum of, of 2,500 pitches. Who got played the deepest? Unsurprisingly, a power hitter who plays for the Colorado Rockies, Nolan Arenado. So that's 329 feet. Uh, they, he got played, at, you know, some of these shallower center fielders. I think, you know, McCutcheon was like 305 or, or somewhere yeah. in that range. So there's about a 25 foot difference. Mets partially because Arenado crushes the ball but also because there's so much space in that Coors Field outfield. Uh, So other guys on that top 10 list, you know, a lot of sluggers you'd expect. uh, Donaldson, Davis, Trout, Goldschmidt, Buchholz. None of that is that surprising to me. But what's kind of cool is that I wanted to look at a combination of guys who were or were not really sluggers and see if they got played with respect, I guess is the way to put it, right? Like, were there sluggers who got played shallow or non-sluggers who got played really deeply? So we did that, and... uh, I think we came up with some interesting uh, names here. So, for example, let's just look at center fielders for the moment. And we're comparing this against slugging on contact. And the numbers I have here will be slightly different than the numbers you'll see online for a variety of reasons, but they're close enough. Uh, so, to give you an example, a really a non-slugger type, Ben Revere. Everybody knows Ben Revere is not a power hitter. He had a 333 slugging on contact, which is pretty low. And he had an average of 302 feet away. That's really, really shallow. So, in that sense, the outfielders are doing it right. Uh, at the other end, Nolan Arenado, 329 feet 675 slugging so that makes sense right and if you look at the uh at the relationship between the two it's it's a pretty strong relationship but as always there are outliers and i think this is where i'm fascinated
1: <laughs> before we get to the outliers the think about guys like ben revere that fascinate me is like i would think it was almost impossible for the outfielder the on the non-pull side the opposite way I don't think you can play him too shallow. Like, <laughs> no. What are the uh, like? I remember this one. I remember when when Luis Castillo played, and he would be hitting from the left side, and he would dump singles over the shortstop's head in front of the left fielder. And it just he never hit the ball to deep left. Literally never. It was almost like why isn't the, this left fielder playing twenty feet behind the like it it, it, it someone re- like Ben Revere like he should never be able to get a hit to the opposite a fly ball hit to the opposite it, field. It,
0: it reminds me like you know on our our summer softball team, there's actually a rule where you can't come in. Like on the infield dirt, just because you don't want to embarrass the hitter. Like they make you stand a little bit further back, even if you know it's a weak hitter who's never going to hit the ball over your head. That's kind of how I see it, because you're right. Him going the opposite way, he's never ever going to hit it over your head. And if he does it once, it's well worth the risk of you going in and getting all these little bloopers. Yeah. So I think that's interesting. But what's cool is like you can look at some of the outliers. So, who, for example, would be a non slugging slugger who gets treated with respect? And um, this is kind of a—it's an interesting scenario because he used to be a slugger, Prince yeah. Fielder. Obviously, you know, only played part of the year, uh, didn't play well, had to retire because he got hurt. But he only slugged 408 on contact. I remember, uh, you know, Arenado was 675. Uh, he was still being played 321 feet away. And I think that's just because they were thinking of the past version of Prince Fielder rather than the version we actually saw last
1: year. Yeah, for sure. And even the year before, I mean, I think after that really hot start in 2015 when he had was sort of a nice renaissance, In the second half of the season, he barely hit for any any power. I remember he had one big, like, walk-off home run in September, but it was, like, his first home run in, like, six weeks or something at the time. So he basically had stopped. This was not the Prince Fielder that hit 50 home runs, you know, seven years ago.
0: Right, but it's cool because I think people are – he's coming up to the plate, and you're not thinking – who is this man I'm seeing in 2016? You're thinking, I have the legend of Prince Fielder 2011 in my mind. Yeah. And so that's the way he got played, which, which is, I don't know, it's interesting. You just, you're just you not playing him the way he is now, but the way he used to be. For sure. Um, so we can do it the other way, too. Which sluggers got played kind of shallow and actually crushed the ball? And you're going to see in a second why I'm very excited about one of these names. Uh, the first name is Trey Turner. This is actually the kind of impetus for me thinking about this in the first place. Trey Turner crushed the ball last year. He only got played 310 feet away. And so the question for me is that we know a lot of his slugging percentage came on speed. He would turn singles into doubles for sure. But were teams just not giving him enough respect because he looks like a speed guy as opposed to being a, a quote unquote power guy?
1: The other issue, though, with a guy like that is if you do play him deeper, it makes it that much easier for him to turn singles into doubles. Like any, it would keep if the you, ball in front of you though. Even still, with that kind of speed, you're opening up. You know where you're cutting it off. If you're cutting it off 15 feet deeper, you know this is a guy that. If, on singles to left center field, there'll be doubles. He he
0: slugged like Mike Trout last and I <laughs> yeah. don't expect him to keep that up. Obviously, um, but he was he was a really fascinating guy who got played pretty shallowly. Uh, the other guy here, Keon Broxton. 311 feet, 742 slugging on contact. And now I'm very excited about Keon Broxton because uh, I've I've considered him to be kind of a breakout guy like all winter long. They picked him up for nothing from Pittsburgh last year. This is Milwaukee. Keon Broxton uh, shows up on the speed list I have like all the time. I look from, you know, fastest home to third time on triples and Buxton is on those. Hamilton's on those. Trey Turner's on those. Keon Broxton shows up on those a lot and he also crushed the ball. And We saw exit velocity for him was really outstanding and you can see the slugging percentage here. He did not get played very deeply. So maybe you have to think about Keon Broxton in a different way. Yeah, the,
1: the Brewers seem to be the team that's like, you know, starting there. the 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 sense I get is that they're valuing speed. Um, they led the league, in, I think, stolen bases by a wide margin last year. Uh, obviously, a lot of that was Jonathan but they have Broxton. I'm and with their new front office. I'm sort of wondering if they, not that we're going to see the, the mid eighties Cardinals again, but like relative to the rest of the league, whether this is going to be the team that really is sort of trying to use speed as kind of their. Um, What's the word like market efficiency? Yeah,
0: I need to see more pitching from them, but otherwise, uh, I'm pretty pleased with the rebuild that they've got going on. They are they are building for their future. Uh, so we were just talking about center fielders. We can kind of do the same thing in the outfield corners. So for example, in left field, the shallowest guy. This makes a ton of sense. Nori Aoki. 269 feet he's a left-handed hitter without power yeah so this is kind of the ben revere effect exactly. we were just talking about yeah,
1: teams are, are playing ioki correctly it probably should be a little shallower
0: and the deepest mike trout <laughs> three uh, that's his pull field 309 feet that all makes a ton of sense uh, what i thought was interesting is i found a couple of guys who had the same distance against them with enormously different slugging percentages so for example 303 feet away uh, Eddie, uh, uh edwin escobar Edwin Encarnacion, excuse me, uh, and Matt Kemp. Okay, so those guys both slugged. And Jet Bandy. There's like a 200-point difference in slugging percentage there, and they got played the same distance away. I don't have a good answer for that. I just found that to be
1: completely Yeah, because I'm looking – I would wonder – you'd think – my first instinct would be like, well, are these guys playing like Fenway or – Houston, Houston, where where you're sort of prevented from, but that's not the case. And and you're
0: right. By the way, that's the next step. We're just talking about, like, raw feet. It really should be, you know, percentage towards the wall because you're right. The outfield dimensions are very different in every park, and that would make a big difference. Yeah, Houston versus Colorado versus Boston for sure. Um, You can kind of do the same thing in right field, who's the shallowest. Jose Iglesias makes perfect sense. He's got no power, and that's the other way. Carlos Gonzalez is the deepest, which makes even more sense because not only is he a power hitting lefty, He's mostly playing in
1: Coors field, which is very deep out there. So that makes it, a lot of and sense. Three hundred ten it almost feel like three hundred and ten feet. I'm like that feels kind of shallow but when you think about it. In some ballparks down the line, three hundred and ten feet is basically a home run. And that's
0: that's all of his games. If we had yeah. just looked at his home games, I'm sure it would probably be deeper. Yeah. Uh and so what's fun to me is okay, three hundred and one feet. Who are two guys who got played three hundred and one feet away from home? Matt Carpenter, six hundred six thirty one slugging, that seems kind of shallow, and Jason Hayward, who slugged three eighty seven, which is to say not at all. I still think that's teams thinking. Well, Jason Hayward's talented. He used to be able to hit, and they hadn't really adjusted to him not hitting.
1: It's also like there's, you know, just because when he makes contact, he may actually hit the ball deep. It's just that, that he doesn't may not. When he, he made when a he lot hits, of lousy contact, I, just, I should say when he makes when he hits fly balls, he may hit the ball deep. Right. You know, whereas like that's why I find center field a little more interesting in this regard because you get a much wider range. You know, you have or at three twenty nine and Ben Revere at three oh two. You know, whereas left field and right field, obviously for obvious reasons, the range. For, yes, Because of the outfield wall, the dimensions are much different. Where every, every park is basically the, the same as center field. Right and left field, you get huge differences.
0: Well, that's why I like using center field as a proxy as well, because the hitter's handedness doesn't matter as much. Yeah. Obviously, if a guy's a pull hitter in left field or right field, that's going to change things. Uh, that's kind of the other thing with right field. Uh, Nolan Arenado and Gerardo para. Were played the exact same distance away. Now the slugging percentage there is about 200 points difference. Now obviously, uh, one's a righty and one's a lefty, but even still, that is not Arenado's pull field, <laughs> and he still out-slugged him. So I think that says a little bit about Pryor. So you can kind of see just again scraping the surface here, but there's a lot that can be done with this data to see you know who is actually being played the deepest or the shallowest, and maybe who should be played the deepest or the shallowest. Yeah. You know, it's it's more about efficiencies and positioning, which we know is a huge part of what defense is right now.
1: And also, it's one of the things that we started to look at a little bit in the postseason where we were really trying to get granular with. F- positioning because it also can be it becomes also more of a storyline where if we say well you know this guy was playing 10 feet shallower or deeper than he normally does they can go you know sort of go ask why yeah what were we was, doing was it there? was it a mistake or you know was it was there a reason for it you know that allows us to find to really get into to another level of the game and i mean you watch a lot of teams now you know the pirates come to mind as one where they have a an outfield position coach who basically between every batter is coming to the top step of the dugout and sort of sending out signals like an air traffic controller yeah um and then but they admitted that last year they didn't do a very good job at sure. that which is what made mccutcheon
0: uh look so poorly in the outfield not not the entire reason but i think a big part of the reason uh so i thought that was a lot of fun that was our show i'm mike petriello matt myers this is the MLB.com stackcast podcast catch you next week